In Colorado, on average, someone dies from opioid-related overdose every 15 hours, according to data from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Opioid use disorder prevalence is highest in Arapahoe, Denver, El Paso, Jefferson, and Adams counties. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. Leading the fight against the opioid epidemic is the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention based at the CU Med Center Skag School of Pharmacy at the Anschutz Medical Campus. The group organizes local and state officials, public health experts, law enforcement, and others for a collective response to the opioid crisis. On this edition, we learn more regarding how we might mitigate the opioids abuse crisis from the Consortium Executive Director, Dr. Robert Valak. Uh, what's the effect of the COVID-19 been on the opioid uh, epidemic? It's kind of like you've described. It has a lot more people with the understandably higher levels of anxiety. Of course, we've all been more anxious the last year and a half than we probably have been in, in quite some time um, with COVID. And so people have been doing, like you said, they've been using more substances, including opioids, uh, but also alcohol use is way up. Cannabis use is way up. Um, anxiety medication prescriptions are up 35% in a year. It's the biggest jump we've had in 50 years as far as anxiety drug prescribing. You know, it goes up a little bit over time because maybe we're finding anxiety better and, and identifying it better and treating it a little bit more each year. But it never jumps 35% in a year. Um, and that's COVID. And all those indicators, we think, are of, of because of the anxiety and stress and people self-medicating, like you said. And some of those folks, not everybody, but some of the folks that self-medicate might turn into folks that have a, a use disorder and develop addiction. And, and uh, unfortunately, with the sheer numbers of people who are now doing more of these things, we're worried about having a, a new wave of folks with addiction that we'll have to treat that are basically sort of the COVID wave um, that, that came in that might not have if it weren't for COVID. So obviously mm -hmm. in, a, in COVID's bad by itself, but it's not doing us any favors with the opioids. A COVID wave, you would think with uh, things opening up more, then their worlds would be more expanded. It would be coming back again, at least some part. And you might have that. Exactly. It's like a tsunami happening. You know, there's an earthquake in the ocean and it sends a wave towards the Hawaiian Islands. And even yeah. if the earthquake stops, like COVID has stopped, COVID is the earthquake. The wave got generated because of the earthquake and it's sending that wave towards the Hawaiian Islands. And we're afraid of this wave crashing down on us with all these people who might develop addiction because they started now using these substances for the last year and they used them just long enough to start developing a problem. And even if the COVID, COVID goes away and those numbers drop back to what they were before in terms of anxiety levels, there's that group of people that, start, you know, that did this for a year, and some of them are going to become addicted. And that, that wave that's going to come, even if it's only one wave, we're worried that that could be a pretty large number of people, and we should be ready for it and to try to identify it and help get people treatment so they don't end up even worse, you know, having a, an overdose or a death. How does a person go from painkillers to heroin? That seems like it's a real bridge too far, but I guess some people are crossing it. Yeah, it's really kind of a progression. You know, people start most often, they start with leftovers in medicine cabinets, or they used an opioid for a while, and some people, if they use them chronically, can become addicted if they aren't managed well. Most people don't if the doctor is managing them, but some still could. But if the people are non-medically using it, so I suppose the people that are not under the care of a doctor, it's the 70% we're talking about, or the 17% yeah. that use their own stuff later, um, those folks 
progress and they use up the opioids that they have, then they start borrowing from medicine cabinets of family members and friends and looking around. Then they find that it's difficult to keep getting prescription opioid pills that they can't get anymore, but it's too late. They're addicted. So now what do I do? I either have to go lie to a doctor or go lie to it and go to the emergency room and lie and say, I'm uh, yeah. I have pain or whatever, or I have to go buy heroin, which is cheaper and easier to get anyway than trying to get prescribed opioids from a doctor by lying. Doctors are pretty smart. It's hard to fool them. And, and so most people will say, well, it's cheaper to buy $25 worth of heroin and convert from wow. prescribed opioid pills over to heroin because it's cheaper and easier to get. And then they're in a really very dangerous situation, obviously, because heroin is a, a real dangerous product. Um, it's not regulated, obviously. There's no better business bureau for heroin. Either you don't know if there's any fentanyl in it. There might be some fentanyl cut into it. If so, you might die from this next from this next injection. So it's really serious. We want to give people opportunities to get into treatment because it's treatable. If somebody is heroin addicted, it is treatable. And we need to get people into treatment so they can get treatment, get stabilized, get their job back, you know, get, get back to being productive members of society because that's all possible and we have good treatments that work. So that's our big push is we want to expand our treatment capacity. Anyone who has unfortunately become addicted, we want to help them get into treatment and, and save them. And, you know, because their family wants them saved. Society is far better off if they're saved. We all win if that person gets into treatment. I know you're talking about treatments there. I guess there's another uh a medication called naloxone. Did I pronounce that correctly? As uh, yes, it helps good. to reverse overdoses to opioids. Yep, there's a medication. It's called naloxone, or the brand name is Narcan, and it's a it's an easy to administer. There's there's an injectable version, but but we really promote the nasal spray. There's a little nasal spray version. It's so easy to use because there's no needles. Yeah. There's no vial is really easy. I mean, if you, know, you can put your fingers together, you can administer it. And it's harmless. If someone doesn't have an overdose, you could give them this drug and they wouldn't even know you gave them anything. It would just be like a nasal spray and like, well, mm-hmm. it didn't affect me. But if they had an opioid overdose and they're about to die and you give them Narcan, it will, it will revive them uh, long enough so that they can get, to a, get the EMS there and get the paramedics there and, and save their life and get them to a hospital. And so naloxone is a is a very critical tool to have around, whether it's in, you know, libraries or schools or businesses or just people who are um, if in harm reduction organizations, syringe exchange programs, um, opioid treatment programs, anybody that's at high risk, people coming out of jail who are often opioid addicted. My own cousin yeah. was opioid addicted, came out of jail three days later, went back to his, his old friend group, used again for the first time in a year and overdosed and yeah. died. So it's, oh, we need wow. to get naloxone out there to make sure those people don't die. Because uh, I don't think my cousin deserved to die. I think he deserved yeah. a chance to get into treatment, but was still waiting to try to find treatment. And unfortunately, didn't have naloxone around and passed away. So we want to have this be available um, widely. I, I would think if someone is incarcerated, it would be harder for them to get enough medication to become uh, addicted to anything. Yeah, he was addicted. He was addicted. Then he came out, though, and his body had sort of recalibrated back down. He'd lost a lot yeah. of his tolerance, and he had sort of, you know, gotten dried out and went through withdrawal. Unfortunately, in jail, didn't have any help, which was terrible. But um, by the time he came out, 
he used a small amount, but for him, it was a very large amount because his body had, had, had lost its tolerance. And for him, then that became an overdose. What would normally for him had been a normal dose became an overdose and he died. Yeah. And unfortunately, wow. that happens a lot. Every year people happen, you know, probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 people a year have that happen in Colorado. Because their body tolerance changes and they're not aware yep. of it. Yep. Wow. Their tolerance went away. Because when they start using years ago, you know, their tolerance goes up and up and up and they can tolerate more and more. When they go, when they go to jail for a year, then their tolerance comes back down. But they didn't know that. And they go back and use the same dose they used before, which is now way too much. I guess we also see a contrast between uh, uh, opioid misuse in urban areas versus uh, rural areas there, too. It could be because it's harder to get or because they just have a different set of pressures, uh, which may not trigger as, as much. Would you say that that may be taking place? Yeah, you know, we find that, that opioid misuse is, is really, it cuts across all areas. You know, I, I know about it happening in, in rural Colorado and Otero County in La Junta and Lamar, and I've been to the, the San Luis, uh, the, or excuse me, the lower Arkansas Valley, and talked to folks and, and in the communities about this happening there, right to downtown Denver, you know, very urban, and very yeah. rural, the San Luis Valley, very much an issue in the San Luis Valley, has very high overdose death rates uh, on a population basis, or in Pueblo, so it's urban, it's rural, it's any part of the state, there's very few parts that are untouched by this problem, unfortunately. What is your, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, your OptiSafe? Oh, yes, OpiSafe. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's two programs we have, OpiSafe and OpiRescue. OpiSafe is a program to help doctors prescribe safely and monitor patients better so they won't become and, addicted. And for the listeners there, we're not talking about the Andy Griffith show, okay? <laughs> nope, not that Opie. Right, exactly. Different not Opie. Opie. Same pronunciation, okay. though. Same pronunciation. But, yeah, yeah. So that's a tool for doctors to help them prescribe safely. Then there's a tool for patients and families called Opie Rescue that you can download on your iPhone. It's free, no advertisements, no none of that. And Opie Rescue is a little app on your phone that you can see what does an overdose look like, how would I respond to one? Because maybe you have a family member or a friend or a neighbor who might have chronic pain is on an opioid or who might have opioid use disorder. And you might want to be trained to respond. What if they do have an overdose so that you could save their life? And all of us are capable of doing the things like having an app on our phone or using a nasal spray or, you know, you don't need any medical training to be capable of saving a life. And we can draw, you know, drop those overdose numbers if we can all become a big, just like all of us knowing CPR would be a very good idea. All of us knowing how to use naloxone would be a very good idea. You're bringing up a very, very wonderful point there is that neighbors can prepare themselves to help other neighbors if need be. Absolutely. We think, in fact, that's the best thing you can do is be watching. And, you know, because the, people say the opposite of addiction is treatment. And I think that's wrong. Someone once said that I picked up on the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's connection with other people, both in terms of, hey, it makes you feel better that you're connected with other people. You're less likely to need a substance. You know, you can you have a more fulfilling life if you have more connections in your life. But also, if you're connected to people, they can take care of you and you can take care of them. And we can watch out for each other. And in our communities, my neighbors, I'm really close with my neighbors on my block. And we, you know, we watch out for each other watch out for our kids. We, you know, it's very much a, a, you know, that has that community feel. We can do that for each other. We can keep an eye out and we can be ready to respond 
if someone else has a problem with CPR or naloxone. I want to be able to save their life. So the general public doesn't just have to walk around saying, well, I'm not taking any medications. I don't have any problem with it. So this is not on me. They can actually do, as you said, with CPR and the other uh, uh, interventions we learn. This is another one. So the solution could be collectively, we could probably attack it and bring it down. That's what we believe, is that's everything from storing your medications more safely and talking about that with your neighbors, so to prevent the medicine cabinet problem, and hey, talking about, hey, if so-and-so needs treatment, how can we help? How can we be helpful? Because you probably know somebody within two degrees of separation who has a use disorder, alcohol or opioids or something like that. So it's much more common than people think. So we really do need to take a community approach where we're helping each other out. And these are the things we can do. We can get the medicines out of our medicine cabinets and store them safely. We can help people get into treatment and and tell them, hey, that's good. That's okay. We want you to do that. And we're not ashamed of that. We want to help you. And we can get naloxone so that we can help reverse overdoses and nobody else has to die. Almost every single one of those overdoses is reversible and preventable. Just nobody was around them with naloxone. So we we don't need to lose a thousand people a year. We don't need to. Is there anything else the legislature can do? I think because of the uh, COVID-19 crisis affecting budgets last year, a lot of monies for therapies had to be cut. Could they bring some of that back? Yes. As a matter of fact, they, they can and they are. Senate Bill 137 is called the Behavioral Health Recovery Act, and it just passed a few days ago. It's going to the governor for signature, and it's going to restore virtually all of those cuts and in some cases, increase the budgets for some of those treatment things that, that were really needed before that were not like we were overspending before and had too much treatment available before, you know. And so it's, it's restoring yeah. the cuts and doing a little bit more. And then we're getting some federal money, which is wonderful, from ARPA to be able to address more behavioral health and substance use disorder issues in this coming three years. So the governor's task force, behavioral health task force, is going to be making recommendations this coming fall for how to increase access to treatment, to get people into treatment that need it. So in our last moment here, then the doctor's orders from you regarding opioids would be safe use, safe storage, safe disposal. That is it. That is it. Along with keeping yourself healthy from COVID-19, practice a similar safety with the prescription drugs you use. Should you think you need assistance, it is available at 844-493-TALK. That's 844-493-8255. Many thanks to Dr. Robert Valak of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention for sharing his time with us again for this edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Mask up when necessary, get the vaccine, and we do thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.